Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of noises made by oral pleasure giver Jeremy Hardy. Tonight, Mr. Hardy wrestles with the horny dilemma of how to choose. Thank you, Peter Donaldson, and welcome to you all, and welcome to my two lovely assistants who will be helping me with my difficult task of filling airtime at an advanced age, Gordon Kennedy and Pauline McGlynn. Hello. Hello. Now, I've asked both of you to bring along a favourite poem to read at the start of the programme. Pauline, what have you chosen? I've chosen The Lamb by William Blake. Lovely choice. And I've brought Little Gidding from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Right, well, Pauline, would you like to read your selection? I'd love to. Actually, you can read yours as well, Gordon. I don't need either of you for a couple of minutes. Right-o. So, <laughs> tonight's subject is how to choose. Not a great idea, but it wasn't my decision. Choice has become the watchword of the two main political parties in this country, despite the fact that there is absolutely no public clamour for it at all. They must think we're too polite to ask. Politicians seem to be taking their inspiration from the fact that consumers are presented with an array of different possible providers of services. But we don't even want that. Because I'm always in in the day, I'm constantly plagued by people wanting me to change service providers. The doorbell goes and it's British Gas asking me if I want them to deliver the milk, and I say, no, <laughs> no, it's all right, the milk comes out of the electricity socket. <laughs> and then Pizza Hut turn up and deliver the paper, and... The <laughs> The reason I don't have broadband is I don't know which broadband supplier to use. If one is cheaper than another, why is that? Are they nicer people? Do they use string? Can't, <laughs> can't they form a cartel and fix a price somewhere in the middle? Why can't the council do it? I think I preferred the days when you had to fill the bath if anything was going to be done to the house. <laughs> the street was cordoned off and the gas and electricity disconnected so your mum would make your dad's dinner in the morning and put it in a thermos flask and spend all day making cheese and piccalilly sandwiches for six workmen with yellow fingers and the children had to go and live in Wales until it was over. <laughs> and at least we didn't have to compare tariffs. My life is nearly over. I don't have time to shop for cheap gas. Well, I do, but I've got windows to stare out of. <laughs> the time people spend comparing gas prices could be spent existing in a state of consciousness that I like to call life. <laughs> but both government and opposition want us to be captivated by the idea of choice. They claim that the best way to improve our health is for us to be able to choose which hospital we go to. If I need to be referred, my GP already asks me whether I want to go to King's, George's or Tommy's, and I have to say my reaction is, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. What am I supposed to say? Well, what are the schools like round George's? Is the car park south-facing? I'm not looking. <laughs> not looking to put down roots there. I'm not even going for an enjoyable stay, and I think most people are the same. They don't come out of hospital saying... Well, the operation wasn't great, but you don't go to St. Barnaby's for the surgery. You go for the atmosphere. <laughs> and I don't think I'd want the NHS to pay for me to be treated in a private hospital. If the capacity is there, we can just nationalise it. That was how the health service started, nationalising what was already there. We can do that. We're allowed. And it does matter who provides the service. Now, if people choose to go straight to the private sector, that's one thing. Like hiring a hitman, although ethically dubious, it can give one a tremendous sense of relief in the short term. 
But I don't want my taxes going to a private hosie. You might say that in the short term, private hospitals are there and we could clear waiting lists by paying them to treat NHS patients. And I can't quite marshal the argument against that as a short-term solution, but it's like Jimmy Savile, indefinably creepy. Now, as well as choice in health, we're being tempted by choice in education. A few years ago, I even considered a moving house to guarantee my daughter a place in a state school I wanted her to go to. Some would say it's more honest just to pay for a child's education. I'm always suspicious of the argument that something is more honest. It usually means a thing that's worse but more obvious. For example, I'd rather have my pocket picked than be rubbed with violence. I don't prefer a mugger on the grounds that he's more upfront about it, that he holds a blade to my throat, comes right out and says what the pickpocket was only thinking. <laughs> now, it's not a question of people being good or bad. We make choices having considered how our behaviour affects the world. We have lines we won't cross. I'm someone who clings tightly to his principles because I have so few to spare. And I don't think moving near a school is as bad as paying for one. Now, some would say my choice not to go private was made at my daughter's expense, and I have to say private schools do have a lot going for them. Private schools have better equipment, they've got playing fields, smaller class sizes, and roofs. <laughs> but there are still compelling reasons not to use private education. Private schools now whine that some universities discriminate against their pupils. But that's only right when you think about it. If your education is bought and paid for, it doesn't count. Bent MOT might fool the post office, but it doesn't mean your car's legal. <laughs> if you buy education for your child, you've opted out. You want them to go to university, buy your own flipping university. <laughs> now, people might say... I have to do what's right for my kids. But what about other kids? What about fairness? You could probably guarantee yours a place at Cambridge if you put a horse's head in the vice-chancellor's bed. <laughs> but what about their rights? For politicians, however, being in favour of choice means being in favour of freedom. And every politician has to be in favour of freedom, even though it doesn't really mean anything. Freedom to do what? Huntsmen protest that they are not criminals. Well, not yet, no. Unless, <laughs> unless you believe time is curved. But when the, <laughs> when the ban goes through, they will be. That's kind of how chronology works. At the moment, militant drivers in this country are obsessed with speed cameras being an infringement of their liberty. Motorists are not criminals, they proclaim. Well, sometimes they are. Car thieves are criminals. <laughs> Hit-and-run drivers are criminals. Getaway drivers are criminals. Or very naive cabbies. <laughs> Some driving stuff is illegal, and that's not exactly authoritarian. I've read 1984, and nowhere in the canon of Newspeak do we find the phrase... Please drive carefully through our village. <laughs> now, different countries have different rules. Abroad on the roadside, you can see signs reading, Italy welcomes dangerous lunatics. <laughs> Only partly obscured by the twisted and smouldering carcasses of former tomato lorries. But here, for all our faults, we've come up with an ingenious and imaginative way of limiting speed, something we call the speed limit. And the police are actually supposed to enforce it. And they've got cameras now, so we're banged to rights if we break it. Bank robbers don't whine when they're caught on security cameras. Once again, the police are targeting the poor old armed robber, whose only crime is armed robbery. <laughs> when they should be out there solving the problem of world hunger. 
and drivers actually complain that having to check their speedometers is dangerous because they have to take their eyes off the road. Whatever happened to mirror signal manoeuvre? When I learned to drive, there was no time to look at the road ahead because you got more points for looking behind you. The only way I'd be able to brake in an emergency would be if a child ran into the road, climbed into the passenger seat and banged a notebook on the dashboard. The point is, humans are not necessarily bad. It's just that sometimes we make the wrong decisions. We think we know how much we can safely drink before driving. And the more we drink, the more certain we are. <laughs> Drinks manufacturers have responsibly recognised the problem of drink driving and now target their sales on children who aren't old enough to drive. <laughs> we could make a libertarian argument for freedom of choice were it not for the fact that other people are affected by your decisions. It's fair enough for a surgeon to refuse to operate on someone who won't stop smoking. You've got to give the anaesthetist a chance to get in there. <laughs> If we were to legislate against the right to smoke on the basis that smokers are a burden on the NHS, we'd be opening a can of worms, and not just because we can't be bothered to cook. <laughs> Incidentally, worms are high in protein, and if properly washed and consumed in moderation, can be a part of a balanced diet. It's just that birds overdo it, and so they haven't evolved much. <laughs> Smoking, however, differs from most other vices in that, done to any degree, it pollutes the environment of those in close proximity. So the argument is not just about personal choice. Now, Pauline, the Irish are famous for lighting up, and not just because of the proximity of Sellafield. <laughs> so tell us about the smoking ban in Ireland. Well, it's in all workplaces in Ireland, which includes pubs, and it seems to have worked, though no one thought it would stick. Now, true... Everyone sitting in an Irish bar is now several inches taller because they're sitting on so many patches. But some smokers have said they're glad of the ban because it's been an incentive to give up. One might almost imagine that left to govern themselves, people can be quite civilised. <laughs> ah, no. Steady on, that's crazy talk. And anyway, we can always pop across the border when we're desperate for a fag. True. Think of Northern Ireland not as our leftover from colonialism, but as your designated smoking area. <laughs> what are we to make of this? It seems that sometimes we end up happier when our freedoms are curtailed. I'm fascinated by the term nanny state. In my day, your nanny was your dad's mum, who not only let you do more or less anything, but also fueled you with Quality Street and Tizer to ensure that you were. <laughs> Today, of course, a nanny is an underpaid, non-anglophone babysitter who weeps for her war-torn country and does the ironing as well. <laughs> but I think the image we're supposed to have in our minds is that of the starched and stern governess in Edwardian children's stories, the kind of person who appears in the Tories' worst nightmares and fetish parlours. <laughs> and the implication of the accusation of a nanny state is that we are being treated as children. But sometimes I wouldn't mind being treated as a child because I don't know what to do. I'm not very good at feeding myself and I'm not always able to hit the toilet. <laughs> On the other hand, I don't want people to smack me and I'm not convinced by the idea that to smack should be a parent's choice. Now, Gordon, while we've been talking, I believe you've been looking at some of the pro-smacking websites. Uh, yes, a lot of them seem to have been posted by American conservative groups such as Families for Loving and Terrible Retribution or... <laughs> What that ass for Rumsfeld? Uh, most of them see a direct link between the decline in parental authority and the fact that golf clubs now allow Mexicans. 
Although they don't say which came first. What about the British sites? The British sites are really for the lower end of Tim Henman's fan base, somewhere between UKIP and people who start up petitions against AIDS hospices. We've got uh, parents for choice, families need coercion, and children want belting. Now, whenever the issue is discussed on daytime TV, some avid smacker will say, well, what would you do if your child was about to pour a hot chip pan over their head and run into the traffic with a grenade? And I think, well, I think I'd give up on that one and start another. Yeah, that's, that's right, Jimmy. I mean, all the sites agree that if you don't smack children, they will run into the middle of the road. Children, it seems, are born with a homing instinct that impels them to run across the road in an effort to return to the hospital where they were born. And you can't stop them from doing it. Not according to this advice from Tom Upmeister of Fathers for Vengeance. The only possible way of stopping kids from running into the middle of the road would be to do what the experts call holding their hand or having an idea where they are. <laughs> so your best hope is that you catch sight of them attempting to sneak back from the middle of the road unnoticed, then you can smack them. I don't know much about aversion therapy, but I think it takes several goes before the subject gets the idea. Mm. Well, this site suggests using your own car on a quiet stretch of road. <laughs> giving them a loving tap with a wing mirror at low speed until they get the hang of it. <laughs> Some helpful advice there from the slapping lobby. As to whether legislation is the best way of preventing corporal punishment, I'm not sure. I wouldn't be outraged if smacking were banned because I'm generally against it. And herein lies a point about the claim to be in favour of choice. If Marmite were banned, I wouldn't care because I don't like Marmite and I'm not going to die for anyone's right to eat it. If peanut butter were banned, I'd be devastated. I like that most train compartments are non-smoking, but I'm extremely irked by so-called quiet coaches. They are not quiet at all. It just means people can have a go at you for using your mobile phone. They can yabber away at one another as loud as they please for hours on end, but I can't speak on my phone. I travel the length and breadth of the country alone. A conversation on my phone might be the only conversation I have the whole day. It's my lifeline. Might save me from being found in a hotel room having crushed myself to death in a Corby trouser press. <laughs> but somehow, using a mobile is offensive because you can't hear the other half of the conversation. I am speaking to someone. I'm not pretending. <laughs> and I speak softly into my mobile. But I quite like people who shout. I once thought it arrogant and brash, but now I think it's quite sweet, because it shows that in their heart of hearts, they don't really believe that phones work. <laughs> and I suspect that when they're on aeroplanes and they pull the blanket right up around their necks, underneath they're surreptitiously flapping their arms. <laughs> and eating is discouraged on the London Underground. If successful, the ban will be extended to restaurants. Why... <laughs> On underground trains, on overground trains, they actually encourage eating, albeit the noble sandwich is being supplanted by the wrap. Since when did the bath towel become a light meal? <laughs> and the content of wraps is always something that's just wrong, like Thai-style pepperoni and hummus fajitas. <laughs> there you go. I'm mildly annoyed because I'm being told it's rude to eat. So I think that my right to choose is being eroded. 
but there are areas of rather more significance into which government is wandering. But before I proceed with that, Pauline, I believe that as well as being well-known as an actor and lady authoress, you're a bit of a lifestyle coach. Yes, I've just completed a book called Your Life, My Business, in which I offer advice on lifestyle choices in everything from separates to separatism. And you've got a little surprise for Gordon, because Gordon, mm -hmm. I asked you to come to the studio an hour before Pauline today. Right. And in that time, I broke into your home, went through your wardrobe, threw away all your clothes, knocked your kitchen and toilet together, and covered your garden with wood. <laughs> right, okay. I, I, wasn't my wife a bit worried? Oh, yes. <laughs> but I walled her into the utility room and nailed MDF over the kids' bedroom doors to stop them running for help. <laughs> then I used your mother's maiden name and your date of birth to access your mortgage, which I converted to a high-interest account. Then I remortgaged the house and bought you a derelict abattoir in Lombardy. <laughs> Plus, you've been selected from literally hundreds of eligible presenters to present Channel 4's new property show, in which viewers watch you and a team of Presbyterian ministers trying to convert a loft space to Calvinism. <laughs> this brings me neatly to the subject of religion. We were discussing how far government should intervene in our lives. What do we think, for example, of the ban on incitement to religious hatred? I genuinely don't know what to think about this. I might be cheerier about it if it hadn't been introduced by David Blunkett. Because it has, I tend to think it's designed to make life more miserable for someone. It's true that religious prejudice marginalises, humiliates and endangers vulnerable communities, but so does deportation, David. And yes, the extreme right whips up fear of Islam to promote racism, which needs to be tackled, but I'm not sure Christianity suffers in the same way in this country. Of course, I don't want to see people incited to hate Christians, so why they let Anne Atkins on the radio, I don't know. <laughs> It's been said that attacking a religion is different from attacking a race because people choose their religion. But do they? In some places, religion and ethnicity and even political opinions are almost inseparable. English people look at Northern Ireland and say, well, Protestants and Catholics are both supposed to be Christians. Why can't they just get along? But English people, for the most part, have only the vaguest grasp of Irish history. The story of the famine that we learned was that in the 1840s, the absent-minded Irish forgot to eat their potatoes and had to go and live in America. <laughs> what some don't know is that during the famine, a large number of Catholics became Protestant. Pauline, can you explain? I can, yes, Jeremy, and... Thank you for your concern. <laughs> During the famine, uh, there was soup on offer from the Protestant church for those who converted. This gave rise to the expression supers and is one reason why some Protestants have Catholic surnames. Now, some listeners might think, what's a Catholic surname? And can't think of anyone whose name is Nigel Vatigan or Sam, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. <laughs> But broadly speaking, when we say Catholic names, we mean Irish names, Protestants having migrated from Britain. Are there many Jeremys in Ireland? Very few, but more than we'd like. Right. <laughs> and Ireland remained Catholic after the English Reformation, which partly explains why the Irish rebelled against Cromwell. As children, we learned not that Cromwell led England in revolution against the Crown, but that there was a civil war, and the opposing sides were the Roundheads and the Cavaliers. Basically, it was just a haircut thing. <laughs> One lot looked like the Grumbleweeds, the other lot like Lawrence Lillian Bowen, and it all kicked off. 
Then there is the economic interpretation that it was a bourgeois rising by the new merchant class. Then there is the religious interpretation, which is that it was all to do with Charles being a Catholic sympathiser. This led Parliament to fear that he would rip the condom machines from Westminster and they'd all have to marry their researchers. <laughs> when the national question came to a head in the 20th century, the political divide roughly followed the religious divide. And in 1921, the imperial solution was that the UK should keep the top right-hand corner where most Protestants lived. Partition was later adopted as a way of separating Jews and Arabs in Palestine and Hindus and Muslims in India. In fact, if you look at any long-running, blood-soaked territorial dispute in the world, there's an Edwardian pillar box not very far away. <laughs> Someone comes to work on your central heating system. It's a given that they will be in your home long enough to repeat the mantra... In my opinion, religion causes more war than anything else. But in all these cases, the common thread is not theological debate, but the involvement of a colonial power. It is in the interest of rulers to divide the ruled, ultimately turning neighbour against neighbour in pointless and bloody strife. MI5 introduced the Daylandia to Britain for that very purpose. <laughs> As for the ruled, whether we allow ourselves to be divided is to some extent our choice. We can choose our politics and our religion, and we can sometimes choose our nationality. But from now on, all immigrants seeking citizenship will have to do a test and take an oath to Her Majesty the Queen, her heirs and successors. Now, I'm sorry. I was born in Britain of British stock, and I refuse to swear an oath of loyalty to the Queen, let alone her heirs and successors. That's kind of a blank cheque, isn't it? <laughs> you don't know what you could be pledging allegiance to. It's not looking good so far, unless Prince... <laughs> unless Prince William splashes about beyond their traditional gene pool, some pretty weird stuff is going to be thrown up in the next couple of generations. I'm not taking a chance on pledging allegiance to a hair-covered torso locked up in a Scottish castle. <laughs> Anyhow, nowadays in Northern Ireland, politicians trying to avoid inflammatory language speak not so much of religious or political differences, but of the two traditions. But if it really were just a problem of different traditions, I'm sure it could have been sorted out long ago. Perhaps that's because I grew up in Surrey, and if people had a different tradition, it just meant they opened their Christmas presents before dinner. <laughs> I think that because I am British, I'm quite well-placed to see what the problem is. The fact that a little over half the people in Northern Ireland choose to think of themselves as British is neither here nor there. The point is it's up to us to choose. It's our colony and we don't want it anymore. <laughs> then again, the Republic has gone all posh and swanky and they don't really want it either, but tough. You can't sack part of your country just because it's in the corner and the accent isn't lilting. <laughs> We haven't sacked Norfolk just because they make the royal family look genetically diverse by the... <laughs> and religion plays a blinding role in dividing people because it makes exclusivity divine. But we can't just blame politicians for this. God must take some blame because he hasn't even revealed himself in a way that's a consistent experience for different people. Now, I say he, but in a number of faiths, God is neither male nor female, although in only a few is he a dancer in a Bangkok nightclub. <laughs> but if any single faith were that convincing, everyone would have agreed on it by now. Human beings all just want a full tummy, a laugh and a good night's sleep. We're not that hard to please. So I can't tell you which religion to pick. 
If you like a bit of karma and God in all things, go for Hinduism. If you don't like the caste system, maybe Sikhism. Hinduism's got lots of gods. Judaism introduces the idea of one just single god. Islam is a reworking of your basic Jewish god with some more modern ideas and a drinks ban, which is essential because the call to prayer is even more grating than thought for the day when you've got a hangover. <laughs> so which religion should we choose? Pauline, our resident lifestyle coach, can you come up with the ideal faith for Gordon? Well, I'm willing to try. And Gordon, are you ready to get religion? Yeah, go on then. <laughs> right. Well, basically, all religions satisfy three human needs. The need for ethics to be codified, the need to make sense of an emotional yearning we call spirituality, and the need for celebrities to find something inside themselves when their looks start to go. <laughs> now, Gordon, sadly, you're not famous enough for Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical cult that's sweeping Britain. Everyone from Madonna to Guy Ritchie. <laughs> that little red string you tie around your wrist that reminds you you've forgotten your sense of the ridiculous. <laughs> Kabbalah, if my phrase book is correct, is the Hebrew word for receipt, something that people in show business are always seeking. If we can claim it against tax, we're interested. <laughs> uh, don't some religions let you have a new body as well? Yes, although in Buddhism, the other popular celebrity religion, reincarnation isn't a positive thing. What, not even if you end up with a really nice body? You know, pecs and a big... No. <laughs> There's no soul, but what's called the very subtle mind that survives death and seeks a bodily home as a new conception is taking place. What? So it's looking while you... Yeah, oh. I know. Imagine trying to conceive with some old ghost trying to get at your ovaries. <laughs> worked for Catherine Zeta-Jones. True. <laughs> anyway, the aim of Buddhists is true enlightenment outside of mere existence by following the eightfold path. What's that? Well, I don't know. It, a path with eight folds in it. <laughs> that would be stairs. Well, I, I don't know. Right, the eight steps, then. Isn't that Alcoholics Anonymous? No. <laughs> No, that's 12 steps, but a lot of them are swearing and repetition. <laughs> Look, anyhow, the Buddha says that the search for nirvana is the search for permanence in a world where nothing permanently exists. Nothing permanently exists, but he had no luck shifting that gut. <laughs> well, I don't think any of the major religions are based around sit-ups. Oh. <laughs> Muslim praying is probably best for the abs. Oh, yeah, but that's five times a day. Well, you look, I don't know which religion to suggest then. That gentle rocking thing that the people do at the Wailing Wall is quite good for the lateral obliques, but you can bang your head if you don't wear the big hat. <laughs> I think that sentence sounds better in ancient Hebrew. <laughs> done religions before. I'm mostly patios and pension schemes. Anyway, what's your religion? Diagnostic. What's that mean? <laughs> Means I know there's something wrong with me, but I'm not sure what it is. Well, what religion were you brought up in? C of E. It was founded so that when people lapse, it's not too much of a wrench. <laughs> See, you, you Catholics lose your faith. Anglicans just can't remember where we left it. <laughs> Look, guys, uh, look, thanks very much, but I'm really, I'm not looking for religion. I'm quite happy, well, I'm, I'm quite happy. 
Infidel. This means, <laughs> this means Gordon will have to make his own moral choices without spiritual guidance. Ultimately, the more we think about things, the happier we'll be in the long run, and the less will be our need for or tolerance of religious or political diktat. I haven't even started on the loss of choice under corporate capitalism and the demise of apple varieties, <laughs> and whether a socialist or anarchist approach is more likely to rescue fruit diversity, but I'm afraid the clock has beaten us once again. <laughs> there now follows a choice of listening on Radio 4. I'm afraid it's the archers or nothing. Good night. <laughs> Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred A. Gordon Kennedy, B. Pauline McGlynn, or C. Giles Brandreth. The producer was arguably David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for BBC UK Living Choice BBs.